Welcome to Bitchy History, the American history podcast that would like to remind you that we have Thanksgiving dinners to thank for the creation of Tucker Carlson's family wealth, and that's enough of a reason to have a problem with this holiday. Before we get started with the show today, there's a couple of new features on the podcast website that you might want to check out. The first is that the website now has a new URL. Rather than typing in all of that podpage.com backslash nonsense, just type in bitchyhistory.com and you'll get to the site. You know, when I bought that URL, the hosting company tried to warn me off of it because it might potentially offend someone. Yeah, that's like the whole point. I'm afraid that ship has sailed. I'm not changing the podcast name and you'll all just have to live with it. The website now also has a page of affiliate links to various books I recommend, ranging from women's history to American history. Some of them are related to topics previously covered on the podcast or ones that will be covered in the future, and I will continue to update the page with new recommendations. Additionally, there is now a little pink sidebar on the right side of the website, which will allow you to record a voicemail for the show. I can't guarantee your voicemail will be featured, but if you have a question or comment for the show, please feel free to leave it, and you just might get to hear your voice on an episode in the future. Now on to the main show. Welcome to episode nine of Bitchy History, where we will finally talk about the history of the quote unquote first Thanksgiving. And I put heavy emphasis on the quotes here because it was neither the first celebratory meal of gratitude between Europeans and natives. And by European standards, it also wasn't a Thanksgiving at all. But we'll get into how the modern day view of this event came about later in this episode. As I mentioned in episode 7, when I first introduced the concept of the Puritans and their journey to America to this show, most of us grew up with a very child-friendly view of the first Thanksgiving. Squanto helped the pilgrims grow their crops, and in return, the pilgrims expressed their gratitude by extending an invitation to Squanto's tribe to join their festivities on the first Thanksgiving. Mm. Nope, sorry, it didn't happen that way. And as we got older, some of us learned a much darker version of the story about the pilgrims and the natives. We learned of murder and war and oppression, and that became the grim, dark version of the first Thanksgiving. Kind of like what would happen if you set the writing team from Riverdale loose on Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving special. But seriously, though, how did Archie Comics go from this... ...to this... I just have, you know, a couple of questions, that's all. But that's a topic for a very different podcast, not just a different episode. One day, I'll start a scathing pop culture review podcast just to be able to have an excuse to mock Riverdale, but that's not the point of today. So that grim, dark version of illness, oppression, and death, how does that one pass the accuracy test as far as the first Thanksgiving goes? I mean, here's the thing. It's less wrong in some ways, at least in the greater context of how the relationship between the pilgrims and natives would end up playing out. But it just skips a few steps between that first successful harvest feast and the massacring of the natives. The so-called first Thanksgiving and the relationship between the natives and Puritans of Plymouth was neither as friendly as our childhood Thanksgiving pageants made it seem, nor as violent and oppressive as our modern understanding of colonialist oppression might make it seem. The violence would come, make no mistake, but for one brief moment and place in time and geography, cooperation between natives and English colonizers seemed possible before the English Puritans completely demolished that opportunity. So what actually happened with that first Thanksgiving? 
Well, first of all, the Pilgrims were not the first Europeans to come to that area of the New World. In fact, the area of Plymouth wasn't even named by the Pilgrims. In 1616, Captain John Smith, yes, that John Smith, surveyed the area of New England and created a map of the area. On that map, he labeled the area of what is now Plymouth, Massachusetts, as New Plymouth. In a description of New England, Smith endorsed New Plymouth as an excellent good harbor, good land, and no want of anything but industrious people. Peter Firstbrook, in his book A Man Most Driven, points out that Smith rather completely ignored the fact that there were industrious native people there already, which is definitely fair. Colonialist types of this period did that a lot. By the way, if you have an interest in Firstbrook's book, a link to it is listed on my website. In any case, there had been Europeans coming and going from this area for a while now, so the pilgrims were not coming into a vacuum where the natives had no understanding of or experience with white people. And so far, that experience had been not great. So the pilgrims make landfall at Plymouth on November 11th, 1620. And for any of you that have experienced a Massachusetts winter, it should be clear why that's a problem. They didn't have an established colony, and winter was far colder than they'd been prepared for. Despite this, they began to look for a settlement site, because that's kind of the whole point of being there. By mid-December, they've settled on an abandoned village, which had previously been inhabited by the Patuxet tribe. But what will they do when the Patuxet come back? Oh, don't worry about that. The Patuxet are basically all dead because of an epidemic, probably caused by European diseases. So no one is using this village right now. It's free real estate. But even though they had finally chosen a settlement site, because they arrived very late in the season, the building of houses was delayed, and the colonists had to basically spend most of their winter on board the ship. Most of the passengers got sick. Many suffered from scurvy, which, as a side note, is my worst nightmare. I eat vitamin C like it's candy. Look up the symptoms of scurvy if you want to also begin mainlining orange juice like it's the only thing between you and death. Anyway, 45 of the original 102 colonists end up dying that winter, which is a pretty high death toll. After that harrowing winter, the Pilgrims would begin to build up their settlement in the Massachusetts Bay Area. The Pilgrims wouldn't make contact with the local natives until March of 1621, which makes a lot of sense. The natives were like me, not going anywhere once it starts to snow unless it's 100% necessary for survival. Samoset, an Abenaki chief who spoke some English, is the first of the native tribes to make contact with the colonists. Samoset gives them the rundown of all the local important leaders of the region, including the chief of the Wampanoag tribe, Massasoit. If you listen to episode 7, that name should be a little bit familiar to you. The Wampanoag tribe, under the leadership of Massasoit, is where Roger Williams goes to stay after being banished from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. At the very least, we know that Williams had maintained friendly relationships with the Wampanoag well into the 1630s. Samoset agrees to arrange a meeting with Massasoit, which will begin a mutually beneficial trade agreement between the two groups, as well as a treaty in which both groups would provide aid for the other when they were in conflict, like a very small 17th century version of NAFTA and NATO. The Pilgrims had arrived at a great time to make friends with the Wampanoag. The tribe had been hard hit by the 1617 epidemic, which had probably been smallpox, and they were at war with the Narragansett tribe when the Pilgrims arrived. This means that the Wampanoag were open to alliance with the newcomers, who had weapons and resources that the Wampanoag needed, and vice versa. A great deal of this would be helped along by a former member of the Patuxet tribe, you know, the one that was 90% wiped out named Tisquantum, better known to American schoolchildren as Squanto. William Bradford described Squanto as a special instrument sent of God in his book of Plymouth Plantation. 
Squanto's interactions with Europeans prior to this hadn't given him the best first impression of colonists and explorers, and it starts far before his meetings with the pilgrims. Six years before the Mayflower arrived, a slave trader captured Squanto along with several others of his tribe and sold them into slavery. While he was gone from his tribe, illness wiped out about 90% of the coastal tribes, hitting his own tribe especially hard. Eventually, he would escape and make his way back to his home around 1619, only to find it deserted. Nothing greeted him but the bones of his fellow tribesmen. He realized he was the sole survivor of his village. The illness had spread so quickly that many local tribes never had time to bury their dead. Though the Wampanoag were not his tribe, Squanto was taken in by them, likely as a captive or servant rather than a full member of the tribe. Due to his English-speaking abilities, which he had learned during the period in which he was enslaved, Massasoit used him as a translator for his interactions with the pilgrims, and Squanto established himself as a key resource for the pilgrims at Plymouth, teaching them how to survive and negotiating between the native tribes and the colonists. He also assisted in the construction of the Treaty of Peace between the settlers and the Wampanoag tribe, which heavily favored the English, to be honest. Squanto soon moved to the settlement and helped the newcomers learn to farm efficiently in the native way, which, yes, did include using fish to fertilize the soil. Our elementary school teachers didn't lead us astray with that one. And this leads us to the actual first Thanksgiving at Plymouth. What do we actually know about this feast that is supposed to have occurred sometime in the autumn of 1621? It turns out... Not much, actually. There's very little detail in the written records, because no one at the time really ascribed much importance to the event as far as their written records were concerned. Holding a feast around harvest time wasn't very unusual. This was a typical thing done by most farming communities. The starvation and death of the previous winter would have made a feast celebrating their good fortune even more appealing at this point. Here's what the surviving written record of the Plymouth Colony says about this first Thanksgiving. William Bradford writes in Of Plymouth Plantation, They began now to gather in the small harvest they had and to prepare their houses for the winter, being well recovered in health and strength and plentifully provisioned. For while some had been thus employed in affairs away from home, others were occupied in fishing for cod, bass, and other fish, of which they had caught a good quantity, every family having their portion. All the summer there was no want, and now as winter approached, wild fowl began to arrive, of which there were plenty when they came here first, though afterwards they became more scarce. As well as wild fowl, they got abundance of wild turkeys, besides venison, etc. Each person had about a peck of meal a week, or now, since harvest, Indian corn in that proportion, and afterward many wrote at length about their plenty to their friends in England, not feigned, but true reports. Edward Winslow and William Bradford also penned a book called Mort's Relation, Journal of the Plantation at Plymouth, which tells a similar story. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling that so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as with little help besides served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Many of the Indians coming amongst us and amongst the rest, their greatest king Massasoit with some 90 men who for three days we entertained and feasted and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought the plantation and bestowed on our governor. And although it not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. And in New England's memorial by Nathaniel Morton, there's an even more brief mention of the event. Being now well recovered in respect of health, as hath been said, they began to fit up their buildings against winter and received in their first harvest and had great plenty of fowl and fish to their great refreshing. 
And that's it. Nothing of note, really. Just a standard harvest meal, which probably only got a mention because it was the first successful crop and would mean that the coming winter would not be nearly as harsh as the first one the pilgrims had lived through. It's not exactly the makings of a story so grand that it needs to be a national holiday that students reenact in schools every November. And in fact, only one version of this story even mentions the attendance of the native tribes. The other two just make vague mentions of a plentiful harvest which would see them through the winter. Some readings of these historical documents have even led people to doubt that the tribes were actually invited to this party at all. In Mort's relation, it seems to indicate that the exercising of arms, i.e. shooting guns into the air in celebration, which honestly is the most American part of this whole story in many ways, was the thing that led Massasoit to bring 90 of his men to the defense of his allies because he believed that they were under attack. Once they arrived and saw it was a party, they killed some deer and essentially invited themselves to the celebration. And this wasn't even the first time that it happened. The Wampanoag were very sociable neighbors, a fact which had previously caused much dismay to the pilgrims because they hadn't had the food or supplies to host the frequent number of times that the natives had just dropped by for tea without so much as a call to warn them that they were on their way over, which is also mentioned in Mort's relation prior to the harvest. Winslow wrote, But whereas his people come very often and very many together unto us, bringing for the most part their wives and children with them, they were welcome. Yet we being but strangers as yet at New Plymouth, and not knowing how our corn might prosper, we could no longer give them such entertainment as we had done and as we desired still to do. Unfortunately, these friendly relations and peace between the natives and pilgrims would not last, which is where the darker part of the story begins to take shape. The alliance between the Wampanoags and the Pilgrims would function relatively well for a few decades, with both sides working to defend each other against the French and other local tribes. But by the time that Massasoit's son, Metacomet, also known to the English as King Philip, had inherited leadership of the tribe, relations had begun to fray. King Philip began using tribal alliances to coordinate efforts to push European colonists out of the New England area. Many of the native tribes in the region wanted to push out the colonists following conflicts over land use and diminished hunting as a consequence of the expanding European settlements. A final spark ignited the conflict when a converted native man named John Sassamon, who had served as an interpreter to the New England colonist, was ambushed and assassinated. A jury of colonists and Indian elders convicted and executed three Wampanoag men for his murder. War was officially declared in 1675 by the New England colonies, leading to a bloody and devastating war for both sides. In an article published in the Historical Journal of Massachusetts, Montclair State University professor Robert Cray said that the death toll could have been up to 30% of the English population and half of the Native Americans in New England. And while that's hardly the end of this tale, it's a good place to stop for the purposes of this part of the episode. Now it's time to move on to the question that's been burning in all your minds since I read those terribly lackluster Bradford and Winslow writings about the Harvest Feast. Or at least I assume this question has been burning in your minds. Otherwise, why are you still here? That question being, how did three paragraphs of we had a great harvest and ate a big meal get turned into a national holiday, which is part of a nationalistic mythology of America's past? First, I think it's important to explain what I meant at the beginning of the episode when I said that this was not actually a thanksgiving by the standards of the pilgrims. A thanksgiving would have included fasting and prayer and would have been religious in nature. The events in 1621 were celebratory, not necessarily religious. This was a party, a harvest feast, which had little to do with religion, at least as far as anything with the pilgrims had little to do with religion. 
Later, actual thanksgivings involving religious prayer and fasting to give thanks to God would be recorded by the colonists, notably in 1637 and 1676, both of which occurred after bloody victories in which they defeated natives in battle, such as the end of King Philip's War in 1676, which involved the Plymouth men mounting the head of Metacomet, or King Philip, above their town on a pike where it remained for two decades while his dismembered and unburied body decomposed. Understandably, that makes for a less heartwarming story for children to perform pageants about at school. We also know that this wasn't the first time that a friendly feast was celebrated between European colonists and native tribes. For instance, in 1565, nearly 60 years before the Plymouth Feast, a Spanish fleet came ashore and planted a cross on the beach to christen the new settlement of St. Augustine in what is now Florida. To celebrate the arrival, 800 Spanish settlers shared a feast with the native tribe. I mean, look, European colonists and explorers had been arriving in the New World since 1492. It beggars belief that anyone could think that it wasn't until 1621 that some of them bothered to sit down and have a meal with each other. The colonists weren't usually nice to the natives, but there had been semi-friendly relations from time to time between Columbus and the Mayflower. So this was neither the first feast nor an actual Thanksgiving. But how did we get from the truth to what we learn in our November lessons in second grade? On October 3, 1789, George Washington issued his Thanksgiving proclamation, designating for the people of the United States a day of public Thanksgiving to be held on Thursday, the 26th day of November, marking the first national celebration of the holiday. In 1841, the Reverend Alexander Young explicitly linked three things in his book, Chronicles of the Pilgrim Fathers of the Colony of Plymouth. The 1621 rejoicing, the tradition of autumn harvest festivals, and the name Thanksgiving in a one-line footnote. The line, this was the first Thanksgiving, the great festival of New England. But we would not have an actual official national holiday for Thanksgiving until 1863 when President Abraham Lincoln called for an annual celebration to be held on the final Thursday of November. And it wasn't until this post-Civil War period that we began to see what we would now consider to be modern Thanksgiving rituals beginning to take shape. For instance, football and Thanksgiving. Thirteen years after the institution of the national holiday, the first football game played on Thanksgiving was the Intercollegiate Football Association Championship in 1876. The game and the holiday became so connected that by 1893, the New York Herald called Thanksgiving the official holiday for watching football. The NFL played its first game on Thanksgiving in 1920. For those of you that care, it was Yale versus Princeton. Yale won 2-0. I hate that I know this fact because I hate football. Don't come for me about this because you will not convince me to like this sport, and it will be a waste of time for both of us. I just think it's rather odd that a nation that prides itself on its virility should feel compelled to strap on 40 pounds of protective gear just in order to play rugby. Then there's another Thanksgiving tradition, pardoning the turkey, which is an extremely weird tradition no matter how you look at it, to be honest. It's often stated that President Lincoln's 1863 clemency to a turkey recorded in an 1865 dispatch by a White House reporter was the origin for the pardoning ceremony. A few other instances of this would pop up during the Kennedy, Nixon, and Carter presidencies, but it wouldn't be until 1981 that the practice would become the norm under President Reagan. The turkey ceremony also became a source of satire and humor for reporters. The tradition of a harmonious pilgrim Wampanoag feast would come in the 19th century as well, alongside a desperate attempt to find an acceptable national creation tale. Carla Pastana, in her 1993 article, The Quaker Executions as Myth and History, puts it this way. 
The Pilgrims, who established the inconsequential settlement of Plymouth Plantation, won pride of place in the national creation tale during the 19th century, primarily because they were not implicated in the acts of religious persecution and could be admired as uncompromised advocates of liberty. The more significant Puritans of Massachusetts Bay left a more conflicted legacy, one that Americans grapple with to this day. Because, as you'll remember from Episode 7, Puritans were hypocrites who actually weren't big on religious freedom at all or any freedom for that matter, which presented a major problem to the nationalistic identity of America as a country founded on the ideology of liberty. In the article Monumental Mobility, the memory work of Massasoit, the authors point out that the holiday myth of the first Thanksgiving began to spread as anti-immigration sentiments in the late 19th century were looking for a hero to present as the perfect national founders, and they found the pilgrims to be the perfect archetype for their mythology, white, Protestant, democratic, and blessed with an American character that was centered on family, work, individualism, freedom, and faith— I would personally argue that that is a terrible interpretation of everything that the Pilgrims and Puritans stood for. But when it's propaganda, facts don't matter. And it was propaganda, plain and simple. But if you've made it through nine episodes of this show, that shouldn't exactly be a big surprise by now. That's it for today's show. It never ceases to shock me that people actually like hearing me bitch about history, but so far the analytics page says that people are actually listening. So thanks for tuning in. Normally, this is a spot where I'd let you know what the next episode of the show is going to be about, but to be honest, I'm not quite sure yet. It's Pride Month, which means that I want to squeeze in a couple of episodes about queer history, but I'm debating a couple of different topics, and I guess you'll just have to be surprised on Thursday. Or follow me on TikTok. Sometimes I post about upcoming episodes before they come out. What I do know for sure is that on June 19th, I'll be talking about the history of the Quakers and the abolition movement, and on June 22nd, I'll be teaming up with another history account on TikTok to do an episode on the history of drag in America, which should be a great episode, so please make sure to tune in for that. Also, if you do follow me on TikTok, I will soon be hosting a History and Drinks Live sometime this month, where I and several other historians on TikTok are going to go live and talk about history and answer your questions while getting mildly tipsy which admittedly could turn out to be a horrible idea, but I guess we'll find out. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here on Thursday.